Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you'll help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Blue carbon is a new name for carbon dioxide stored in coastal and marine ecosystems. Through the use of carbon markets, it could be a tool for stabilizing the climate that sustains our lives and economy. If you were to use the average price of carbon, which is about $60, the total value of carbon services of seagrass is over $2 trillion. Many of the opportunities for blue carbon markets are located in developing countries along the equator. If I am sitting on seagrass, I can sell the carbon sequestration services of my seagrass. Funding those carbon sinks reduces global emissions and benefits communities on the ground, too. It's about protecting people from sometimes very violent extreme weather events. Having a healthy mangrove forest in front of the villages is literally a question of life and death. Blue carbon, sinking it in the sea, up next on Climate One. Many of us think of trees when we talk about carbon sequestration or storing carbon dioxide where it can no longer trap heat in our atmosphere. Yet blue carbon may have even greater sequestration potential. Coastal ecosystems such as salt marshes and mangroves have carbon capturing capacity that may surpass that of terrestrial forests. Seagrasses, for example, currently cover less than 0.2% of the ocean floor, but store about 10% of the carbon buried in the oceans each year. Emily Pigeon is Vice President of Ocean Science and Innovation at Conservation International. She says just like the Amazon rainforest, preserving and restoring coastal ecosystems is critical for drawing down atmospheric carbon. Mangroves, seagrasses and salt marshes are found on every continent except for Antarctica. And what's special about these ecosystems is that they uh, remove carbon from the atmosphere and the ocean and then bury it for millennia in the soils below them. And so because they've been doing that amazing process of removing the carbon from the ocean and the atmosphere and burying it for such long periods of time, they end up with very large, very deep deposits of sticky carbon-rich soil below them. And so in some cases, these ecosystems can have up to four or five times more carbon on a per unit area than we see in some of the, the ecosystems that we traditionally think of as being carbon rich, like the forests of the Amazon or um, other carbon rich terrestrial ecosystems. So then what's the potential if these very rich um mechanisms for capturing carbon from the air and putting it into the ground underwater. What's the potential for increasing carbon storage? How big a lever is this? 
So we know these ecosystems are incredibly uh, carbon rich. And so uh, we also know that we've lost at least half of the world's mangroves, probably about a third of the world's salt marsh. And quite frankly, we don't really know how much of uh, the seagrass is lost because we don't really know what the total area is. But this represents a, a really huge opportunity, I guess, to return these ecosystems, to restore them, to then become the machines that they are at removing carbon out of the atmosphere and the ocean. At the same time, we know these ecosystems have uh, very rich carbon stores in them and the ongoing loss that we see of these ecosystems due to coastal development, due to coastal water pollution and agriculture um, is also a really important action we need to take to make sure that the carbon that's stored in there isn't then emitted as a result of the conversion. Recent studies have shown us that while these ecosystems represent about 2% of the uh, terrestrial forest, that ongoing losses of them could account for up to 10% of the emissions from forest loss. They're sort of a, a small, very rich ecosystem that actions on a small area can have a disproportionately large impact from a climate mitigation point of view. And when most people think of nature-based solutions, they tend to picture land-based solutions like planting trees. We hear Jane Goodall and Trillion Trees. There's lots of talk about trees. Why don't these blue carbon solutions get more attention? I think that the understanding of the importance of these ecosystems as carbon mitigation really only emerged out of the scientific literature about 10 years ago. And in that 10 years, it's taken some time to get the attention, for instance, of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the scientific group that really oversees the state of knowledge when it comes to climate change. These ecosystems were included in guidelines by the IPCC in 2013. And that was really the first uh, acknowledgement within the climate discussions of these ecosystems. Mangroves were explicitly mentioned in the Paris Climate Accord, which was wonderful. But again, it was a sort of small mention. And I think it took some time for countries to really understand how important these ecosystems are. But we now have at least 40 countries, including these ecosystems, actions associated with these ecosystems, to how they're going to make their commitments to achieving the Paris Climate Accord, which is wonderful to see that happening. But it also, considering that uh, these ecosystems are on every coastline except for Antarctica, also shows you the opportunity for other countries to step up and do the same. So we've talked about where these opportunities are, the scale. What's the time frame we're talking about? How fast can these coastal ecosystems draw down carbon compared to land-based forest? If we're thinking about them in terms of their capacity to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and from the ocean, they're probably very comparable, like restoring a mangrove system with restoring a uh, terrestrial forest from scratch. The thing that's amazing about these ecosystems, however, is that that capacity, that, that ongoing sequestration pretty much continues forever ad infinitum. And so whereas terrestrial forests often reach maturity and at that point reach a sort of equilibrium with the atmosphere, these ecosystems, if they're healthy, continue forever to sequester carbon. And so that's why we end up with these enormous carbon deposits underneath them, is there, if you like, a history going down of the carbon laid down year after year after year. 
I think one of the most important things we should be doing, however, is really remembering that these ecosystems, like the terrestrial ecosystems, have these amazing carbon stores. And when we degrade them or, or destroy them, that carbon is released into the atmosphere. And that's that's instantaneous. And so there's actions we can be taking today to, to prevent that. Well, let's dive into mangroves, which we discussed here. According to Fair Carbon's John Vermilia, there are only 17 successful mangrove restoration projects in the world. If they're so powerful and effective, acknowledging that it's relatively new, the understanding of the importance of these areas, why are there so few? Why aren't there thousands? So mangrove restoration is one of those things that is easy when you know how to do it. Mangroves are a very pretty ecosystem that lives at that really interesting interface between the ocean and the land. They want to be in the ocean water, but they don't want to be too far into the ocean water. They depend on the shape of the coast and the ocean water that uh, floods them every day with the tides. And so I think that a lot of people originally have been restoring these mangroves as though they were dry land terrestrial trees. And we've learned, however, a lot in the last 10 years that they need to be treated differently and really to pay attention to the landscape around them such that the success rate for restoring mangroves has increased dramatically in the last five years, such that I think John, who I know and really respect, I think those numbers might be slightly out of date because I think that we've seen success now. We've found in many places that if you restore the shape of the coastline, um, that the mangroves often restore themselves, that they plant themselves back. What we see often when mangroves have been degraded, uh, a common example in Southeast Asia, for instance, might be mangroves that have been removed for fish and shrimp ponds. And the act of putting shrimp ponds in so changes what the coastline looks like that it's no longer suitable for mangroves to, to grow. And so that when people try and go restore, the mangroves all just die off. So what we've found now is that people go in and really restore the natural water flow, actively restore the shape of the coastline, that there'll be a sort of often a natural re, um, replanting by the mangroves themselves when you give them the conditions they need to grow. People often ask me for, you know, bright spots, good things that are happening. What you're describing is something that's very powerful climate lever that can happen quickly, can happen in lots of places. Mangroves can restore themselves. What are the biggest barriers to this very promising blue carbon solution? I think there's so many different pressures on these coastal areas that finding the places that we can restore them. If we look throughout Southeast Asia, there's large areas of the coast that have been lost to fish ponds, various other agriculture and development. And it's often very challenging because those developments, those, that agriculture is somebody's livelihood. And so that finding that balance and really being able to provide the alternative incomes, alternative livelihoods for people such that we can restore and conserve these critical ecosystems, while also ensuring that the people that depend on these areas are able to thrive is the challenge that we are faced with every day. We hear sometimes other places with kind of energy and food and restoration coexisting. You know, lots of ranchers have uh, wind turbines on their land, that sort of thing. Can shrimping and mangroves peacefully coexist? 
So we are doing that experiment as we speak. So there's a lot of discussion about shrimp being the major driver of mangrove loss, especially as we work in Southeast Asia. Conservation International actually has a project right at the moment whereby we are looking at working with shrimp farmers, initially in Indonesia, to intensify a certain fraction of their ponds. So for instance, if you have a large area of uh, shrimp ponds on the coast, we go and we increase the technology that they have available to them so that they can get more shrimp per area on a sort of small fraction of their farm. And then we restore the shrimp areas between those ponds and the coastline. Now, that this gives us a number of huge advantages. One, they get more shrimp per area on a smaller area. And that shrimp, because it has an environmental benefit, they end up getting a higher price for their shrimp because we can certify it as being environmentally friendly. Then that shrimp ponds itself now have a large area of mangrove between them and the coastline, which has all that carbon value that we were just discussing. It also provides a natural barrier protecting the shrimp from any storms that come through. And it also means that when the outflow from the shrimp actually makes it out to the coastline, it's been cleaned by those mangroves. And so this is potentially a, a win-win-win on multiple levels. And we're, we're actually trying this as we speak in Indonesia as an experiment. That's fascinating. So that nature and the economy can coexist and it, that person doesn't face a choice of, you know, my income or that that mangrove. You know, this is relevant to so many places around the world because most of the world's population lives along coastlines. And we hear elsewhere in this episode from Marina Federenko Aula about the social impact of mangroves. How do you see the community benefits of coastal programs to store carbon in the soil? So it's really interesting. When you go to the communities, they all know how important the mangroves are. We have a, a wonderful project, which was one of the first projects to produce carbon credits using the VERA methodology on the north coast of Colombia. And if you go and sit with the communities there, they know their mangroves are important. They know their mangroves are critical for their fisheries. They know their mangroves are critical for protecting their communities. Um, they uh, consider themselves great stewards of the mangroves. But quite frankly, they don't really care about the carbon in the mangroves. So if you think about all the important values of mangroves, um, whether it be biodiversity for supplying fisheries, whether it be timber or other livelihoods, from a local point of view, the carbon really isn't that important. It's an abstraction. It's something far away. You can't see it. It's an abstraction. And I think that though to you and I, as much as we respect those other values, they really aren't that important to you and I sitting where we are, right? Whether those, and it's the carbon that matters to us. And so to me, this is what's distinctly different about the carbon ecosystem services. It's the ecosystem service that value that is valued by everybody else as opposed to the locals. And so it's with that ecosystem service that we can use things like carbon markets and other climate financing approaches to bring resources to the communities on the ground who are actually doing the actions. Emily Pigeon, Vice President of Ocean Science and Innovation at Conservation International. Thanks for sharing your insights on the importance of oceans and mangroves here on Climate One. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the potential of blue carbon. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now on your device. 
You can also help by sending a friend a link to this episode. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Coming up, why we should value the work of whales in storing carbon. The whale, unfortunately, doesn't speak English, (laughs) doesn't speak dollars and cents. And so we've taken them for granted. Well, they're going around helping us fighting climate change. So if you could speak our language, or if we could understand their language, they would be saying, hey, dude, why don't you pay me? I'm helping you survive. That's up next. Hey, everyone. I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. When it comes to sequestering carbon, one blue whale is worth thousands of trees. That was the finding of economist Ralph Shami of the International Monetary Fund. After a transformational whale-watching trip, he did the math and pegs the value of each whale's carbon services over its lifetime at around $3 million. In a conversation with Ariana Brocious, Ralph recounts that experience while on a research boat in the Gulf of California. On my first outing, first outing, imagine, and and the beautiful blue whale just appears next to our boat. You have to, you know, nothing prepares you for that, nothing. Uh, you're in a 25-foot boat, and there's a 110-foot whale just feeding next to you. <laughs> I remember that moment. It's like today. I looked at her, and I thought, what are you? How is it that I didn't know you existed? And th- by the way, you have to understand, the blue whale is the largest creature that has ever lived. You can fit an African elephant inside her mouth, and it would disappear completely. I mean, she could have swallowed us, and no one would ever know, but she didn't. She fed gracefully around us. I, I remember having tears in my eyes, but I was hiding them because I didn't know anyone. So uh, that night, we were all sitting around the table, and we were having wine. And uh, these are whale activists, scientists, and so forth. And they're all bemoaning the fact that the great whales, their numbers have dwindled from over 5 million to about a million, million and some. But for some species, I mean, like the Atlantic right whales, they're almost, they're almost gone. There's 330 of them left. And I was trying to figure out, what do I do? I mean, I felt helpless and hopeless until they mentioned whale carbon. And what I was interested in, because economists and finance people think on average, what's, how much does a great whale capture carbon on average? I had to calculate it myself. And that's the number now that you see all over the world. People talk about 33 tons. That's basically my number. Put that number into context for us. What does that represent when people are thinking about carbon? That represents 1,500 trees on the body of a whale. And that whale, because they're negatively buoyant, because they're so heavy, when they die, they sink. And anything that sinks below a thousand meters is sequestered forever, unless you disturb it. And same with their with their poop too, right? So this is where they they explained to me that, well, the great whales, they for the most part, they like to eat krill. And krill directly and indirectly feeds on phytoplankton. And phytoplankton are really the lungs of the planet because they're the ones 
where everything starts really, the biological cycle of the ocean, of the water, really starts with phyto. Phyto captures about between 33 and 37 gigatons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere on, per year. That's equivalent to the work of four Amazon forests. Okay? So the whale, think of a triangle in your head. The base of that triangle, a whale feeds on krill. The krill feeds directly and indirectly on phytoplankton. Now we need an arm, the third arm, from the from the phyto to the whale. And and there is, which was to my surprise, that it's the poop of the whale. It has in it nutrients that fertilizes the phyto. And there's more phyto, the productivity increases, meaning they grab even more carbon from the atmosphere, that there's more phyto, there's more krill, more krill, more food. So the whales are in this integrated system absorbing carbon and then sequestering it once they die. So you are an economist. How do you then, you have translated this into like a dollar figure. How have you done that to put a monetary figure on this? Remember, I'm just part of it. I'm listening to this conversation. And these people are really committed to saving the whales. All the love of the whales and philanthropy and altruism is not saving them. What else can save them? Right, So I'm sitting there and I thought to myself, well, wait a minute, I'm sitting at the IMF. The IMF is looking at climate change and IMF has identified carbon sequestration, right? We need to reduce our carbon emissions and we need to sequester carbon from the, grab carbon from the sky, from the atmosphere and sequester it if we are going to avoid breaching the 1.5 degrees, okay? So, and the IMF comes out and says, the price of carbon ought to be $78 in order for people to change their behavior. So I'm thinking at this, I thought to myself, wait a minute, wait a minute. If the whales are grabbing carbon directly on their body and indirectly through their fertilization, I know the estimates vary, but let's just say on average, what would, what would be the value of that service? So I said to the scientists, I can value the carbon sequestration service of the, of the whales. And they said, for what purpose? See, they, they were not, they're scientists. They don't think like we do. And I said, I said, think of it this way. I work for the IMF and I provide a service and they pay me a salary. The IMF does not pay me a salary because Ralph is a nice guy and know that, know that Ralph is a husband or, or, or a father or a good citizen or just because I provide a certain service that the IMF is interested in. Do you guys agree? They said yes. Okay, well, here's a whale and it's providing a carbon sequestration service on behalf of humanity. If she could speak our language, what would be the wage that she would demand? That's it. People, because after that, people say, oh, you're pricing a whale. I said, no, man. What I'm trying to tell you is the whale, unfortunately, doesn't speak English, <laughs> doesn't speak dollars and cents. And, and so we've taken them for granted. Well, they're going around helping us fighting climate change. So if you could speak our language or if we could understand their language, they would be saying, hey, dude, why don't you pay me? I'm helping you survive. So once you put it in that, then you can go out and calculate because then the next thing was, well, it's capturing carbon over a lifetime. It's like people calculate lifetime earnings of any individual, right? So you provide a service over your lifetime until you retire. And now what you're going to do is calculate the expected present value of your lifetime earnings. How much is that? Is that service worth? Yeah, what is it? Two million minimum at the time. Okay, now it could be one million, could be three, but it's not zero. Because up until that work, and even today, the world still 
puts a zero value on, on the whale despite this work because we only had a value for a dead whale. In countries where they still eat whale meat or blubber or use their oil, they kill the whale, they chop it to pieces, and they sell it as meat, and suddenly it acquires $40,000. So there's, value, there's price in, it, in, in killing a whale, but there's no price for a living whale. So whales are a fascinating example of this, and you've also begun work um, in a different carbon capture sphere of the ocean. So let's turn to seagrass, and using that same methodology, how have you been able to value the carbon sequestration services of seagrass? So this is work with the famous uh, Carlos Duarte, Professor Carlos Duarte, who's the father of blue carbon, actually. So the, it turns out that seagrass, what we were interested in is what is the value of seagrass globally? And seagrass turns out to live for hundreds of years and grabs carbon in the sediments. And it's very easy to measure it. We know how much how much um, seagrass we have today. And there are the, the, the scientists have an estimate of how much seagrass we used to have. And what we do is we build what's called a logistic curve, which is an S-shaped curve, because every system has an upper bound, meaning in terms of a capacity, you know? Seagrass does a lot of other things, but just from carbon sequestration alone, if you were to use the average price of carbon, of last year, which is about $60, the value of the total value of carbon services of seagrass is over $2 trillion, not, not billion, trillion. What's the value in the, in the use case sense of having this financial figure assessed to what we like to call, you know, ecosystem services um, in a broad term? What, how can we use that to inform protection, policy actions that we take. Imagine the following. I'm Bahamas. By the way, this is published work now in Nature Journal as of about two months ago. Uh, it, it, the title, I think, of the paper is called Using Tiger Sharks to Map the Seagrass of Bahamas. These guys are brilliant. They, they fitted tiger sharks with the cameras. And the tiger sharks feed, feed on turtles, and turtles like to feed on seagrass. So the tiger shark mapped the floor the, the ocean floor of the Bahamas, and, and they discovered that the Bahamas is sitting on, 20, I think, 20% of the total known seagrass in the world. What does that mean for the Bahamas? That potentially the Bahamas is sitting on about $400 billion of wealth. Imagine, just imagine. Now, what does that mean, your question? Well, it means the following. Suppose I didn't know that, okay? Suppose no one had ever valued the, the carbon services of seagrass. And then a developer comes around and says, oh, this seagrass is, tourists don't like it. Or, I'll just remove it for you. I'll dredge it, remove it, put a marina for you, and you'll get tax revenue to the government. That's, by the way, is happening in many places that I work in. Suppose I arrive in the country and say, you're sitting on $200 billion worth of seagrass. How would that conversation change? So... Just because you think it's valuable doesn't mean that the government of the Bahamas thinks it is. So how do you capitalize on that idea? Beautiful. Wonderful. There's a whole world out there that's trying to sequester carbon and promising their corporations, countries, and corporations are promising everyone that they're going to go carbon zero, carbon negative, carbon neutral. And it's not enough to reduce your emissions because that's just shutting off the tap. 
you need to drain you need to drain the tub meaning as as al gore calls it there's a sewer up there and you need to drain it and the only way to drain it is through nature now people think of nature the first thing that comes to mind oh trees 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 is is on one fifth of the planet even if you planted the whole one fifth all trees is not going to be enough to do the job for fifth of the planet is the ocean so what does that mean there's a, there's a world that had made commitment to go carbon zero carbon negative by a certain date that date originally was 2050 it was predicated on taking actions at that point in time when they make those commitments as greta said there's a lot of blah 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 nothing was done so that date moved to 2040 before we breach the 1.5 Still, we continue to blah, blah, blah. Nothing was done. So now you see the IPCC reports and other reports talk about we need to do something by 2030 because we keep talking and not doing anything. But from a market perspective, that means that demand for a technology that can solve this problem is skyrocketing. And that's why the price of carbon has picked up. So if I am sitting on seagrass, I can sell the carbon sequestration services of my seagrass. To whom? Well, to the whole, all of these corporations that made commitments to reduce their carbon footprint. Not the seagrass. You never sell the asset, ever. You are leasing its service, in a sense. I have seagrass, and I'm allowing you to purchase its carbon sequestration capability. You pay me the money. I use the money to look after the seagrass on your behalf. And therefore, and this by getting that money, I create jobs, I alleviate poverty, I, I by investing in the seagrass, I create resilience in nature, which creates resilience in the people around nature. And what does Microsoft get out of this? If they're the purchasers, they get to get carbon credits, so they meet their carbon. What does Bahamas get? They can use that money to reduce their debt, to fix up their economy, to alleviate poverty, create jobs and look after nature. What does nature get? It gets to be looked after in perpetuity because the only way you can generate this revenue is the nature, meaning if the seagrass is looked after. As you describe it, that sounds so beautiful and perfect. You've written that humanity faces dual threats, climate change and biodiversity loss, and that this type of a process would reorganize the global economy and ensure that conservation is a source for capital, for development. Yes. However, there are environmentalists who argue that the problem is actually just capitalism itself. And I'm curious yeah. what you think about that position. I fully agree with them. But how much time do we have to dismantle and rebuild a new system? Titanic is sinking. And you're telling me, what if the Titanic didn't sink? <laughs> well, wouldn't be having this conversation. We'd be dancing in the ballroom and the orchestra is playing. But right now, everybody has to get together to fix a problem. The problem is not capitalism, is a, a mockery of capitalism that we are practicing. Nature, when you look at economic theory itself, there's a problem with the theory itself. It doesn't recognize a living nature. You see, ask anybody that you know, say, what is the value of a tree? What is the price of a tree? They'll think, oh, cut it down, sell it as timber. They, because we've been brainwashed to think of nature from an extractive point of view. Nature is keeping you and your kids alive. You see, my group, my guild, my tribe is called what's in it for me tribe. These are the financial guys. And if you start telling them about love of nature, they tell you, oh, go, go hug a tree, don't bother me. So you need to speak their language and say, 
listen, that whale that you may never see in your life is actually quietly saving you. That seagrass is saving you and it has value. Therefore, it has a price, a market price. You can even invest in it. So you, you speak their language, then they listen. Ralph Shami is assistant director of the Western Hemisphere Division at the Institute for Capacity Development at the International Monetary Fund. Thanks for joining us on Climate One. Thank you for your time. Thank you for giving nature a voice. You're listening to a conversation about sequestering carbon in the ocean. This is Climate One. Coming up, the human benefits of investing in these blue carbon ecosystems. You basically have regions that are usually poor and usually depressed and usually struggle from unemployment. And suddenly you have investment that creates a lot of jobs. And you have ongoing 20 years cycle of a project where you keep creating jobs, you keep creating businesses. That's up next. Mangroves are not only important for their ability to suck carbon dioxide from the air and store it in underwater soils, but they are also an integral part of many communities. Irina Fedorenka Aula is founder and co-CEO of Linder, a firm aiming to help companies achieve their net zero goals by developing mangrove restoration projects. She discovered the carbon sequestration potential of mangroves while working in Myanmar as co-founder of a drone company. I actually knew very little about mangroves and I've never been to Myanmar before, but that travel, that project actually changed my life because I understood that it's not just about climate, it's not just about trees, it's not just about sequestering carbon, it's about protecting people from sometimes very violent extreme weather events. And for people who live there, having a healthy mangrove forest in front of the villages is literally a question of life and death. Because uh, when they had a cyclone Nargis, they had massive, massive death toll. Officially, 100,000 people died. And it was just so awful to drive through these villages that have been wiped out. And those villages that were not wiped out, they had mangroves in front of them that protected them. So it was fascinating to to be there, to see people who live through that trauma, but also to now see very engaged people, very engaged leaders and uh, just everyone in the village who absolutely understood how vital it is to sustain a healthy ecosystem. And uh, that just uh, really impacted me. So uh, since then, I was just looking for ways to work on blue carbon and on mangroves and to plant more mangroves. Your Myanmar project aims to replant 5,600 hectares, which is about 22 square miles in a severely degraded area. What have been the big hurdles and how have you addressed them? Uh, well, just to make it clear, so we as Vlinder, we invest in mangrove uh, restoration. And uh, so in places like Myanmar, we are the first investor in the project. And in other countries like Kenya, we are actually the developer. So, uh, so yes, so just to make it clear that in Myanmar, we work with a fantastic partner who, who is called World uh, View International Foundation. Uh, so we have our portion of mangrove, but their entire project is much larger. So they've, uh, they have, I think, over 15,000 hectares. Uh, and um, yeah, it's been 
an owner, <laughs> learning from them and accompanying them in this journey. And again, when I first went there in 2017, was to start mapping with drones and also planting. And um, there have been a lot of learnings uh, and a lot of uh, like really big lessons in, in, in this process, because one thing is to obviously plant a tree, another thing is to grow a tree. And then the third thing altogether is to access carbon market and to get it verified and actually issue carbon credits and then sell them and then send the money back to the community. So that's not as simple as planting trees. Yeah, we often hear so much about trillion trees, plant a yeah. tree as though the trees then just grow themselves and uh, live without any nourishment or support. Even on a global scale, 15,000 hectares doesn't sound like a lot. Can you put that in context in terms of carbon removed as well as other benefits to the ecosystem and the local people? The beauty of mangroves is that uh, we have more benefits than just from terrestrial forest because it's a uh, a border ecosystem, right? So, and you have both benefits going to the land side, uh, which is keeping the land uh, intact, creating more fertile land, creating more biomass, uh, and also preventing agricultural runoff, which is also very important. And then, of course, you have benefits from the ocean side. So it's coral reefs, it's breeding ground for fish, it's uh, breeding ground for crabs. And then you're just creating habitats for biodiversity, birds, insects, uh, bees. And in Myanmar, you have white elephant even living in, in the mangroves. And over the uh, lifetime of the project so far, we already seen white elephant returning to these areas. And that's uh, quite uh, remarkable. So um, yeah, so th that's kind of, biological impact and I think it's also very important uh, for not just the local people but uh, for the world in general to sustain this biodiversity systems because it goes way beyond carbon right carbon sequestration is great you know it's fantastic and we need to do it and that that should just keep happening, but uh, we should be thinking beyond carbon and we should be thinking about biodiversity on land, in the sea, and uh, for people, the fantastic work that the World International Foundation is doing, uh, they've created multiple side businesses as a part of mangrove restoration. So sustainable honey, sustainable shrimp farming, oyster farming, education centers, research centers, so many projects to just give back to the communities, to keep them engaged, to keep them involved, uh, and also to um, really show that um, they, they are at the forefront of research, of science, of uh, innovation. They're not just, um, you know, provincial farmers in a depressed, poor region. And I think that's a huge change that is happening to these communities. Sounds like such a powerful leverage point for marine life, for, for people, for uh, land-based ecosystems. If this is so powerful and so potent uh, and has so many benefits as you've been outlining to marine life and to people, why aren't there more mango restoration projects? There aren't very many. The number is growing, so we <laughs> we ourselves uh, as Blinder we are developing projects now 
and uh, we also invest in other projects and we are also attracting investments to scale up existing projects. So the number is growing, but it just so happens that the countries where mangroves grow and it's basically all around the equator are the countries that are usually on some sort of red lists. And so when we talk about investment, those are countries with high risks. Red list meaning like that they're politically like unstable. Investors. Yeah. Politically unstable, or uh, you, I know you talk a lot about conflict zones uh, where a lot of there's uh, certainly Miramar, there's a lot of arms and cultural conflict there. So they tend to be in places that are risky for investors. Exactly, exactly. And it's uh, really frustrating because uh, we all know that this needs to be done. Uh, there shouldn't be competition between mangroves and or forests or oceans or lakes. Uh, everything, every ecosystem. Uh, is fragile and should be restored. Uh, but mangroves do offer multiple benefits for people, for land, for oceans, for carbon. They bring very attractive uh, financial returns, extremely attractive, even when accounted for country risk, political risks, and, and, and all of that. But big investors are cautious because uh, for the compliance team, it's, it's hard, you know, it's, it's hard to get this pass. Uh, I can talk about the project in Senegal that we have where, for example, uh, one investor is asking for a lot of um, compliance information and bank accounts. And no one in the village we work with has a bank account. <laughs> so, you, so these two, over the life of this project, you need to make sure that it, it lives for a long time. That requires a lot of people going in and measuring, et cetera, outside people that don't that have skills that the villages don't have. And that's just too difficult and risky in, in conflict zones. So people yeah, won't exactly. put in their well, money. We, we, okay. we, don't, we don't work in conflict zones because we ourselves go to projects and, and we, we can't afford to, to go to real dangerous places. And the beauty of mangrove ecosystem is that the land... Uh, where mangroves grow, it's not actually the land, right? So it, it, it's a swamp, it, it, it's a shore. So it's not like you, you could fight over it or, or, or build a hotel on it. it it's, 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 it's a swamp, right? So it's less touchy subject, let's put it this way. So it's actually, it's less risky. And then the biggest risk to nature-based projects is the forest fire. And because by nature, mangroves are in wetlands, so the fires actually, even if they happen, they don't do much damage, right? Because it's it's bad. Um, but, um, and from the political stability question, the way that we structure all our projects where communities are very much involved, where the, the local scientists are involved, local forest services is involved, it's a very good uh, structure for, um, any political system because you basically have regions that are usually poor and usually depressed and usually struggle from unemployment and suddenly you have investment that creates a lot of jobs and you have ongoing 20 years uh, cycle of a project where you keep creating jobs, you keep creating businesses and people are paid on the basis of uh, successful monitoring of carbon. 
And so we've talked about the comparison between mangroves and forests. One of the challenges in forests, of course, is to convince local people that a tree is worth more money standing than cut down and, and made into some product. How do you do that with mangroves? How do you, is it worth more living than, than I don't know, what mangroves are cut up and made into? Exactly. That, that I think this is what sets us apart from other developers because we do share at least 50% of uh, carbon revenue with the local community. And uh, that means, uh, and it's paid annually on the basis of successful monitoring. So it is very straightforward equation that the trees are standing, the community is being paid, right? And uh, then uh, we try to create, uh, well, we don't impose what they need to do because usually they have really good ideas and what needs to happen, right, for, for their own development and their own prosperity. Uh, usually they want to have beehives. So the mangrove honey is, is a good additional value product and uh, communities want to have um, that. Uh, so they, they want to install beehives. Uh, then oyster farming is also uh, popular and is a high value pro product, which, um, as I've been told in Kenya, is also very safe because, of course, the concern is that if you start breeding oysters, like people will come and steal them, uh, to which they were laughing and just telling us that only us foreigners li love oysters. No local would eat the snot. <laughs> so it's very safe, you know. Um, so, so th that um, that so you know we we don't go and we don't preach the value of mangroves. It's very self-evident that people want them, and it is bringing money from carbon and from all these additional businesses that happen. Hmm. Right. So something that's global and, and, and local and tangible. You said there are more projects that reach out to you than you can possibly fund. What does this say about the balance between funding, capacity and supply of projects and people willing to make them happen? Oh, that's, this is very painful, uh, but very important question. There is a huge bottleneck between climate finance and the uh, grassroots projects that need this finance. And it's a structural issue. Because, of course, there is first issue with, like, it's, it's a first issue with all the risk assessment and due diligence that need to happen. Uh, then, uh, and then very often local projects just don't have these resources or capacity to even pass this due diligence from big donors or big uh, investors. And uh, that, that's number one. Number two is the speed at which big uh, organizations move. And there are also biological limitations on the ground because you have a rainy season right now and you need to start planting right now. Uh, but you may have um, six months to 12 months uh, sales cycle or investment cycle with, with a big uh, corporation. And the, 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 the timeless just don't match. And then, of course, uh, from the big investor standpoint, uh, they're interested in deploying five to 10 to 20 million uh, as, as a first tranche, whereas no local community can absorb uh, this amount of money from the beginning. They need to scale up. They need to have a setup. They need to have nurseries. They need to be registered on Vera uh, to, to, like, to even 
get there first. So that's exactly where we come in. So we as Vlinda, we try to solve that bottleneck, taking this local champions, environmental stewards to the professional level, to the carbon market, so that they can then uh, benefit from larger investments. But we need more of that. And, and, and those are very big, uh, very big bottlenecks. And that personally makes me always very upset when I go to COPs or to other big conferences, when I hear from people talking about billion, trillion, gazillion dollars available for carbon finance. And then I know that there's this village and they need to plant this spring mm. and they cannot get 100K. I often hear in conversation, there's lots of money looking for good projects and other people like, hey, we just need uh, a little bit of money and it's, it's you need to bridge that gap. Large environmental and research groups are part of the Global Mangrove Alliance. How are various institutions collaborating to really scale the mangrove restoration we've been talking about? There are emerging organizations and emerging institutions, as well as some very established uh, organizations that are now putting more focus and putting more attention on mangroves. And even from my personal perspective, when I started working on carbon market in 2010, 2011, no one believed in it. People wouldn't talk about mangroves so much or at all. And, and if you start talking about it, people would usually think you're talking about mangoes as fruits <laughs> and uh, no one believed that anyone's going to be paying for it. And, and the amount of change in information and in awareness, in focus, in even just the fact that we have successful investment case now with proven returns, this is just fantastic. So... And this kind of big alliances and big organizations play a key role in that. Uh, and, and I think it's a very positive change. And, and it's a fast change, even though it's never enough. And I know a lot of people are uh, frustrated <laughs> that it's not happening fast enough. But actually, if we just think to five years ago, 10 years ago, uh, we can see that it's been a massive change. And, and that's very positive. Irina fedorenko Aula, thank you so much for coming on Climate One. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's one thing to propose an ecosystem restoration project. It's another to actually implement it. Ariana Brocious asked Isabella Masinde, CEO of Omita, a project management company in Kenya, about the challenges of making a mangrove restoration project a success. If you tell people that uh, you have to preserve this tree so that you can so that they can sequester carbon. They, first of all, what what is that? They they need to understand, what are you talking about? These are our trees. They have always been here. And there's a community I worked with, not really mangroves, but the Maasai of Kenya. They are an yeah. indigenous community. And I was talking about a carbon project too. And they told me, this is the way you people come here, you cheat us, and then you take our land. Because how can you say, where is this thing you want to sell? Where is the carbon? Show us. How can you sell air? And then I told them, we have to plant more trees so that we can have more carbon. And they say, but God planted these trees. We've never planted trees. You know, because then they have all these indigenous acacia species. 
that you find in the dry land savanna. And they never saw anyone plant it. So why are you telling them to plant trees? So, you know, you have to explain because, you know, we have to help the nature to regenerate faster because in the past, nobody was cutting down these trees. And then there was this... Uh, natural regeneration. But because now we have increased population, increased livestock, then we have to seclude some of these areas. What are the biggest challenges to implementing a restoration project like this? And and how do you go about overcoming them? Uh, There are many challenges. Uh, You know, in the first place, you must have the jam plazing, the seedlings, to be able to carry out a sustained restoration program. And the local people volunteered to collect the the seedlings, you know, the propagules. But then you find that sometimes they don't even have the materials to set up a nursery. So one thing is you have to spend a lot of money on getting the planting bags. I think you know them, the planting pots that are used in nurseries. Uh, they are not, uh, and in Kenya, because we have a ban on on plastics and polythenes, it becomes very difficult. So the, the person who has to access them must belong to some association. You are the only person who, are, who is allowed to buy on behalf, you know, that kind of thing. And most of these things are done away in big cities like Nairobi and Mombasa. So the local people don't even know where to go and get them. And then you end up finding them using the wrong materials. They use plastic bottles, the ones that they use for bottling water. And you see, if they use the plastic bottles, then they deform the the rooting system of the mangrove. So at some stage, the mangrove will look like it's growing, but it reaches a stage because it was corrupted during the initial stages, then they don't uh, do very well. Another thing is not everybody in the community may be interested in uh, in uh, mangrove restoration. There are these people who keep cattle and they want to, to graze their cattle. Sometimes the cattle like to go to to chew on the young leaves of some species so that they can get the salt that they they need. But for that, we have worked out a system whereby we provide the salt licks just around the area that we are protecting so that the, the animals can access salt away from there. And we were thinking that maybe another way, even cheaper, would be to make troughs whereby we mix some of the the water from the ocean with the fresh water, and then the animals can get enough salt in that way. It sounds like there are, as you said, many challenges, just even in terms of the implementing the basics of the project, the, you know, the materials and getting things into the ground and keeping them alive, and then layering on the, the challenges we already discussed about convincing people that they're worth saving and, and preserving, right? So with all of this, how do you personally measure success? This community happens to be adjacent to another community that is benefiting from a carbon project. So they were wondering why nobody was, you know, approaching them or why nobody was responding to their request to have a carbon project so that they can also start benefiting like their neighbors. So somehow this is a ready community and they are very eager to 
to work on this and we have worked with them in identifying the degraded sites. Of course, they, they wouldn't have known this if we had not shown them the satellite pictures, you know, because they, they could only show us the nearby areas. But when they saw the entire place, how it looks like, they said, we are going to be finished if we don't have this ecosystem restored. So they are very keen to, to, to participate. And together with the Kenya Forest Service, who are the custodians of all the forests in Kenya. That's nice to hear that there's sort of positive um, social pressure of seeing other carbon projects and wanting to participate and benefit in the same way. Isabella Masinde is CEO of Umita, an impact project management company in Kenya, and Mangrove Restoration Project Coordinator for Vlinder. Thank you so much, Isabella, for joining us on Climate One. Thank you very much for having me uh, today. And I hope that this... Uh, uh, conversation will reach as many people as possible. We need support. We need to support this local community. And we welcome you to Kenya. Come and work with us. Come, we plant in the next rain season. On this Climate One, we've been talking about the sequestration potential of blue carbon. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate can be hard, difficult, sometimes awkward, and it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. Acting on climate begins with talking about it. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now on your device. You can also help by sending a friend a link to this episode. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Our producers and audio editors are Ariana Brocious and Austin Cologne. Megan Basilia is our production manager. Our team also includes Sarah Catherine Coxon and Wensi Shida. Our theme music was composed by George Young and arranged by Matt Wilcox. Glory Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>